Father, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, have gathered once again. We came because we're hungry. We came because we need protecting. We came because we need shepherding. We came because, well, because it's natural. We are bruised sheep, limping sheep, injured sheep, bleeding sheep. We are your mistreated sheep. The world has done to us what you said it would. They hated us because they hated you. We run now to you for security. We run to you for healing. We run to you for understanding. Stretch out your hands and mend us. Restore us. Soothe us. Give us proper perspective. Father, we, we will be fine if we know that we're in your hands. Help this text to reassure us. Help this text to put a song on our lips. We see your salvation and we sing. We behold your holiness and we sing. Use this text to keep us singing. Use this text to make us singing sheep. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Songs. Songs played a big part in my childhood. Some of my earliest memories involved songs. My mom would sing to me before bed. I can recall her singing this song. Oh, where, oh, where could my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. It was a, it was a Pearl Jam song entitled Last Kiss. It's about a boy who took his girlfriend out on a date in his daddy's car. He recalls the night. We were out on a date in my daddy's car. We hadn't driven very far. There in the road, up straight ahead, a car was stalled and the engine was dead. I couldn't stop, so I swerved to the right. I'll never forget the sound that night. The screaming tires, the busting glass, the painful scream that I heard last. When I woke up, the rain was pouring down. There were people standing all around, something warm running in my eyes, but somehow I found my baby that night. I lifted her head. She looked at me and said, hold me, darling, just a little while. I held her close. I kissed her our last kiss. I found the love that I knew I would miss. Now she's gone. Even though I hold her tight, I lost my love my life that night. Oh, where, oh, where could my baby be? She's dead in the street. This is what my mother would sing to me as I fell asleep. 
Sweet dreams, son. Remember this bloody car wreck? I had a bit of a twist of childhood. If you wonder why I catastrophize everything, this is it. The chorus, though, is what was so terrible about that song. Oh, where, oh, where could my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven. So I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. That's, that's bad theology. Bad theology about salvation. That's not what the Bible says. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. Jesus' work on the cross is the only sufficient work to get you to heaven. As I aged and attempted to recover from the trauma of my mother singing me that bedtime song, I started listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks. You know them, the cartoon. Well, they also had an album, a country album. My mother and stepfather used to take me on long trips and that's all I listened to for hours. Just that Alvin, Alvin and, and the Chipmunks cassette tape on repeat. I remember I have fond memories of my mother while we're driving saying, all right, that's enough. We are not listening to this again. And my stepfather, moving her hand away from the radio, replying, it's okay. We'll listen to it one more time. You haven't lived until you heard Alvin and the Chipmunks sing, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. It's, it's better than the original version. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across a young man blowing on a harmonica and playing it hot, and the devil jumped upon a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. I bet you didn't know it, but I'm a harmonica player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'd make a bet with you. Now, you play a pretty good mouth harp, boy, but give the devil his due. I'll bet a harp of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Alvin, <laughs> and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best it's ever been. You know, I'm coming to realize that my favorite songs as a child had terrible theology. This isn't how the devil steals souls. That's bad theology about the devil. Alvin had another song on the album called Achy Breaky Heart. Some of you don't, don't share my end time views, but if you listen to that song, you will be convinced. We are in the tribulation. It's got to be the worst song of all time. The third most influential song of my childhood was Angels Among Us by Alabama. My grandmother was dying of cancer. I went into her room and she was on her deathbed. It was the last time I ever spoke to her. I sung her this song. Oh, I believe there are angels among us sent down to us from somewhere up above. They come to you and me in our darkest hours to show us how to live to teach us how to give, to guide us with the light of love. I do believe there are angels among us, but they aren't here to do what the song says they're here to do. They're here to do the Father's bidding. And I think about that sometimes. <laughs> right before my grandmother went into eternity, there I was, giving her some bad theology. 
bad theology about angels. I have some other songs that were influential in my childhood, songs by Clarence Carter, soul music, Tupac and DMX. I'll spare you the debauchery of the lyrics in those songs. But before we even get into the text, I want you to come into it with this thought. Don't get your theology from the world's songs. Get your theology from the Bible's songs. Don't get your theology from the world's songs. Get your theology from the Bible's songs. You are going to learn a lot about the character of God from today's song. This is a song you want sung to you on your deathbed. This is what you want your mother singing as you fall asleep. Songs are powerful. And they can be powerful in feeding you bad theology. Or they can be powerful in feeding you good theology. Why do you like music? Because God made you to like music. Satan counterfeits everything God creates. So Satan has his songs. And God has his songs. Songs impact you because God has given you a soul that drinks up music. In our text, we have soul music of the highest order. David, a follower of God who lived 3,000 years ago, gives us a strong theological song. He's a prolific songwriter. You list your greatest songwriters of all time, and they all pale in comparison to him. Neil Diamond, John Lennon, Johnny Cash, Smokey Robinson, Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, opening up to all generations. Taylor Swift, Chris Stapleton, Alvin and the Chipmunks. They can't hold a candle to David. Through his songs, you meet the interior David. We've met the exterior David all through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but in his songs, you get the interior David. In 2 Samuel, we've just walked through a really long narrative. And it's not uncommon. In fact, it is a tradition to include those long sections of narrative with a song. So I will exposit not sing this song. You're welcome. <laughs> My hardest genre to preach has always been musical. I'm not musical. I can't sing a lick, but I sing loudly every Sunday. I make a joyful noise. I just struggle in teaching songs. I'm not artistic. I don't, I don't think like that. And here's where I would usually make fun of singers wearing skinny jeans and not being real men. But I can't say that about David. He led men into battle. I've never done that. I was going to fight a guy one time before I became a Christian. And then I saw he was much bigger than I was and had lots of friends. So I made a wise business decision and decided to step back. David is a man of war and a musician. He's a soldier, a singer, and a sinner which makes for a unique song. Poetry. That's what this is. Poetry put to music. I don't enjoy reading poetry. Too many words, too flowery. I mean, just say what you're going to say without all the fluffy words. I'm not a poet, and I know it. See that? That was free. 
I've always struggled to appreciate poetry. I've always struggled to write poetry. I've always struggled to preach poetry. However, this is God's poetry. You could say David is the author, but really God is because he inspired David to write every word. Poetry out of the mouth of God. Now, I can study that. A song from the creator of the universe. Now, I can sing that. We have in our text David's swan song. There are a few songs throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, but this is the last song. This is the swan song. And here's how we will break down this exposition. The king's final song, 2nd Samuel 22 verses 1 through 21. The king's final words, 2nd Samuel 23 verses 1 through 7. I didn't make up these divisions. In the David narrative, which we are about to conclude next week, this is his last song. In fact, look at chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. So we will deal with the king's final song. Then look at the first verse of chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David, the king's final words. The king's final song, chapter 22. The king's final words, chapter 23. We will look at David's last song, David's last words, but we will no longer sing Pearl Jam's last kiss. We must have better theology. We will exposit the lyrics of the song first. There are five stanzas in this song. Each one focuses on a unique theme. We will walk through each stanza while pulling good theology from this Bible song. Stanza, the first stanza, stanza number one, is a theological commentary on the history of David. A theological commentary on the history of David. Notice verse one. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. <laughs> David penned this song on the very day God delivered him from the clutches of Saul. This is the soundtrack of David's life. He's looking back on all his days and he writes these words, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. David doesn't begin in praise. He explodes in praise. He piles on statement after statement. Heaps up synonyms for emphasis. In staccato, machine gun fashion, he gives nine metaphors in two verses. Nine metaphors to describe God. Nine metaphors that name God. David is a theologian, a God-noticer, a God-describer. Describing God by metaphors. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. 
David thinks back on the time when he experienced God's care in the crag. God held David close in the granite hideout. David was a fugitive on the run. He had been betrayed by his mentor Saul. He lost his wife. It seemed all his friends betrayed him. He was hurting. He lived in little cutouts in the mountains, little caves. He's homeless. His father-in-law wanted him dead. His co-workers wanted him dead. He's surrounded by hate and vitriol. False accusation after false accusation hurled against him. David is pointing to the fact that when he is overwhelmed, when he's feeling as though the bottom has dropped out, that in those moments, in those crags, in those tears, in those unsteady days, God steadied him. When you've experienced God's care in the crag, you know he has sustaining power. David said, looking back, God was the bedrock under my feet, the castle in which I live. He's my rescuing knight. When times get tough, God is our security. Did you notice all the mys? My, 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 my. Christianity is experienced in personal pronouns. God protected me from external threat. God protected me from enemy arrows. He is my shield. He's my mountaintop refuge, the rock where I shelter. The, the mention of horn signifies strength. When your strength is gone, he'll be your strength. All the nine images add up to a strong and benevolent protector. He is our God. Church, Raise your hand. How many of you have experienced God's care in the crag? You can testify that he holds you close in that granite hideout. In the end, the only dependable thing David had in life was God. Verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. God is available to be called upon. We could stop there and go home. God is available to be called upon. David didn't just get lucky when he escaped Saul. God intervened. Verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Now, when, when did David nearly drown? I don't remember that in 1st or 2nd Samuel. When was he nearly strangled to death with cords? I must have missed that story. David drowning, David being strangled. That never happened. It never happened just like that, but it happened. This is poetic. He's talking about all the times in his life that, that he was nearly snuffed out when traps of death sprang upon him. David looks back on his life and he sees times of desperation. Those times of desperation are now his reasons for praising God. Now let's pull out some, some good theology from this Bible song. Non-Christian, 
You are listening to the voice of a believer. You are listening to the voice of a believer. When you hear this song, when you hear all of the mys, you are hearing a believer testify of God's goodness. The first time I heard this song, I was with a man in his mid-70s, dying of cancer. I became a Christian about 10 days before meeting him. And he'd say, you're young and I'm dying. But as we drive around in this pickup truck, you're going to hear me praise God because he's been faithful to me. His name was Clyde. This is how Christians talk. This is how they view life. We look back and we remember past evidences of God's grace. We can point back to specific days in which God sustained us. David is not speaking in vague generalities. He's referring to specific moments in his life. We can recall moments when we experienced the inexplicable care of God in the crag. That's the first stanza. The second is a storm theophany of Yahweh. A storm theophany of Yahweh. That is an appearance of God in a storm. A storm theophany. David is using weather to point out the dramatic way God expresses himself. Verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. I love this. In response to David's prayer, God appears in lightning, in thunder, in an earthquake, in a volcano. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundation of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. The earth wobbled and lurched. Heaven shook like leaves. The sky split and took a deep gasp. Verse 9, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. David looks up in the storm and he sees an angry God. His anger is intensified by smoke billowing from his nostrils. His mouth spitting fire. Coals ignite before him. It's all so descriptive, so evocative, so frightening. Ten, he bowed to the heavens. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Any picture of God coming down is going to be dramatic. God is stepping down to earth in the form of a storm. Eleven, he rode on a cherub, that's a chariot, and flew He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. This God stepped down and wrapped himself in a trench coat of darkness. We are all struck observers. This song interprets the thunder as the voice of God. David is not simply informing us of what has taken place. He is dramatizing what has taken place. 15, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. God is the rain cloud dweller. 
he sends zigzagging lightning, an awesome display to scatter David's enemies. God routes them before David's eyes. The Lord is in control of nature and causes it to do his bidding. Verse 16. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. When I was studying for this two weeks ago, one commentator said, David could have just chosen brevity for verses 8 through 16 and just said, God intervenes on my behalf. But instead, he uses 69 Hebrew words and 141 English words. David doesn't intend to merely inform you about what God has done. He wants you to see the God who did it. I don't want to patronize the poetry and explain it away. Nothing registered on the Richter scale when these events took place. But all of this was happening spiritually. David is not talking about literal events. He's poetically describing how God protected him in real life events. Let's pull some more good theology from this Bible song. God allows you to endure trials in order to give you songs. God allows you to endure trials in order to give you songs. David didn't want to go through all those difficult times in life. No one would have chosen that. But it was through the difficult times of life that David experienced the storm theophany, which led him to write this song when the trial was over. I write the songs that make the maidens dance. I write the songs that make the soldiers brave. I am David. I write the songs. But I had to be in the depths to write the songs. Out of the depths, David cries out to God. Out of the storm, God answers David. David's life wasn't easy and yours may not be either. But in those times, God will demonstrate his protection of you. David reflects back on his life and gives us poetic memories. Hard times themselves teach great lessons about how God will come down and rescue his people. David condenses his entire life into one song. By the way, did you hear it? Did, did, did you hear the echoes? The echoes of Mount Sinai. God coming down in a storm. Not only echoes of Mount Sinai, but echoes of splitting the Red Sea. Verse 17. God sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David models for us how we should think about life. 
We should go to the narratives of the Old Testament and see how God was with his people. This is the type of thing God does for his children. David is saying, that was my Red Sea moment. Saul, my time in the, in the crag, that was my Red Sea moment. These are all lyrics of protection and deliverance. God, with his strong hand, brought me through the waters. He brought me into a spacious place. My own personal exodus. And brought me to the promised land. First, David alludes to Mount Sinai. Then he alludes to the exodus from Egypt. James Hamilton said, The narratives of the Bible... The narratives of the Bible are forming the way David thinks about life. He stood me up in a wide open field and there I stood, saved. God acted on my behalf just like he acted on Israel's behalf. He's a a tiring God. See his active intervention. This is a a poetic description of God's sovereign activity. David is teaching you how to view God through the lyrics in his song. View God as one who rescues his children. When God decides to deliver, he does so in big ways. I like to think of this psalm as or or this chapter 22, as as David's version of Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. It's just his great outpouring of praise. Stanza 3. Stanza 3 is a treatise on how to view forgiven sins. A treatise on how to view forgiven sins. Verse 21. David says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statues I did not turn aside. (laughs) What? I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt? And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, my cleanness in his sight? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Has David reverted to some kind of works righteousness? This seems bizarre. It seems like David is singing about himself. He's celebrating his own righteousness. I'm clean as a whistle. I'm blameless. A quick reading of this may lead us to believe he's bragging about his own righteousness. And how can he do that? He's a horrible sinner. Have you forgotten about Bathsheba? Have you forgotten about murdering Uriah? If you're looking for sin in David's life, you don't have to look far. He's certainly not blameless. And his hands wouldn't be described as clean in war or marriage. 
And you say, yeah, but Kyle, this song was written before David's adultery with Bathsheba and before the murder of Uriah, and you would be right. But the compiler, the narrator of this David story, puts this song after we read all of those stories. And he does that on purpose. How do David's words in this song mesh with justification by faith, not by works? Is David guilty of what Alvin and the Chipmunks and Alabama and Pearl Jam were guilty of? Is he giving us bad theology in his song? No. We need a category for David saying, I'm sinless, I'm blameless, I'm guilty of nothing. The Bible speaks of righteousness in two different ways. Vertical and horizontal. One is absolute, the other is relative. Vertically, David is sinless. He's been forgiven. Horizontally, David is still sinning and needs constant forgiveness. I don't think David is claiming moral perfection, innocence in the absolute sense. He's saying... My sins have been put away. And the narrator wants you to know you can have a past like David but still sing of being righteous vertically. Let me say that again. The narrator wants you to know that you can have a past like David but still sing of being righteous vertically. Nathan told David your sin has been put away. You are clean. He's clean because God washed him. This can hardly be pressed as a claim of sinless perfection morally. This is clearly saying God dealt with David as a forgiven, cleansed man. Alistair Begg pointed out that we are in the same state. We actually have Martin Luther to thank for the little Latin phrase, simul ustis et peccator, meaning... We are simultaneously righteous and a sinner. We are simultaneously righteous and a sinner. This is the very heart of the gospel. We only get to God by Christ's righteousness, not our works. I'm sorry, Pearl Jim. You've been misleading people for years. Double imputation. His righteousness imputed to me, my sin imputed to him on the contrary David is not spitting bars of bad theology he's spitting bars of glorious theology and he gives us this it is pride to remain low when God has lifted you up it is pride to remain low when God has lifted you up Christian, this will help you on how to think about yourself. When God calls you righteous, is it humility to argue with him? No, that's pride. That's pride. Humility means agreement with God. When God says you are cleansed, you say, Amen. And some of you, beloved, some of you are always talking. You're always talking about how sinful you were in your past. 
dropping your head, saying you did terrible things. And I just want to say to you, did Jesus redeem you? Then you are righteous. Believe what Jesus said about you. Anything less is self-pity and sinful doubt. You stand in union with one who is perfect. He swept away your sin. David speaks as one made blameless by God. If you're redeemed, you speak as one made blameless by God. How did David become blameless? By the Lord's actions, not by David's actions. Let's get this straight. Sometimes we can lionize David here. God forgave David's sins because of his commitment to David. Not because of David's commitment to him. Now, the next line in this verse has us again thinking, maybe David is spewing some bad theology. Verse 27. With the purified... He's singing this to God. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Church, this is not some strange new teaching. God blesses those who follow him and frustrates those who resist him. Those who follow God will find him to be faithful. Those who resist God will find him to be terrifying. God does not treat all people alike. He has a pet people. Those who decide to go to war against God, who take up arms with a rival kingdom, they will be brought down. Non-Christians, hear me. You can wave the white flag and be treated as a son and not an enemy. This is a fair warning to what is coming. Repent and believe. Stanza four. Stanza four is a testimony of supernatural enablement. A testimony of supernatural enablement. Look at verse 30. For by you, now kids, you listen up here. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. (laughs) This is far beyond the feats of a normal man. One man against an entire troop of soldiers? Leaping abilities? Was David Spider-Man? Or Superman leaping tall buildings in a single bound? No. This is speaking of the military superiority that God provided for David. David has no illusions about his rise to power. He knows from where it came. It was a choreographed rise to power. These are all lyrics about supernatural enablement. Verse 34. God made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. David's talking about this deer that could stand on the side of a steep mountain and and escape the predators that are chasing it. The word like here 
in verse 34 is not in the original language. It's literally, he made my feet the feet of a deer. Recognize the genre here or else you're going to be in trouble. This is poetic. If you try to interpret everything literally, then David actually has the feet of a deer. So we're not going to do that. We know how to recognize genre and apocalyptic literature and poetic. Here's what this is speaking about. Picture this sure-footed deer on the side of the mountain. David has developed an adeptness. David has developed an adeptness to handling life struggles. Actually, David didn't develop it. God gave it to him. God gave him those feet. God gives you the feet to handle life's struggles. And not always be teetering. Verse 35. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. David has a trainer. An archery trainer. God instructs me on how to bend the bow. These bows were reinforced with bronze and were hard to draw back. In other words, David's hands were taught how to do combat. David has a divine Mr. Miyagi. It's, it's not Daniel's son. It's David's son. Verse 36. You have given me the shield of your salvation. And your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me. And my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. And did not turn back until they were consumed. God, you, you made my enemies turn tail and flee. They cried uncle, but uncle didn't show up. I finished them off. My feet did not slip. Literally, my ankles did not buckle. God sustains the ankles of his people. 39. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle and made those who rise against me sink under me. Here's the point. David was able to accomplish his task because God infused him with the power to complete it. 43. I, be I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. It's strong. Imagine hearing a song. Like, like a cockroach on the street, I stomped them. Like wood to the grinder, I pulverized them. Stanza five. Stanza five is a missionary emphasis on the nations. A missionary emphasis on the nations. 44, you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Church, God sent the nations to serve David. God brought the nations to serve his king. God brought 
some from many tribes and kindreds and tongues to bow before his king. Now, interesting, Paul in the New Testament quotes verse 45. He quotes it when he's writing in Psalm 15. He uses this verse, Paul in the New Testament uses this verse as a missions verse. Paul used it as a missions verse, and so can I. Paul says, what happens in part here will happen fully with God's final king, Jesus. When some from not many nations, but when some from every nation, tribe, and tongue submit to God's king. Church, when we sing, we need to sing of God bringing the nations to himself. We, like David, need to sing great missions songs. Verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Now, I, th I think this is probably the most clarifying verse in the chapter. David says, this is why I'm singing songs. This is why I'm rhyming your name. Verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The final image of David is that of a worshiper. He uses this song as a means of personal worship. David is sustained by the unfailing kindness of God. Now, I want to pull another truth from this text, but before I do, I, I want to make Samuel small for you. I want to make Samuel small for you. We divided Samuel into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but it's meant to be one book. We did a sermon series through 1 Samuel, now a sermon series through 2 Samuel, but the narrator originally arranged them to be one book. The book of Samuel is bookended with songs. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song. 2 Samuel 22, we have David's song. Literarily, not literally, but literarily, songs frame the book. And I only point this out because the narrator wants you to take note of it. Both songs begin with the horn of salvation. Both songs end with the anointed king. They have parallel themes throughout. Clear, undeniable echoes. Rock seems to be a theme in both songs. Hannah's song is a maternal triumph. David's song is a warrior's triumph. Now that you've got that, let's pull some more good theology from this Bible song. God wanted this song used regularly in Israel's worship. God wanted this song used regularly in Israel's worship. So, how could God ensure that this song would be sung by Israel? Well, here's something you likely didn't know. 2 Samuel 22 is Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22 is Psalm 18. It's a repeat. The only difference is this, 2 Samuel 22 was written for private use and Psalm 18 was written for corporate use. 
David's song is reworked for corporate worship to be sung publicly in the temple. Now, every time Pastor Daniel Hurd preaches, he's working through the Psalms. And he will come to Psalm 18. And when he does, I'll let him tell you about the chiastic structure that's in the song. He likes those, and so does one of my favorite commentators, Jim Hamilton. Consider this song we just exposited being sung in corporate worship services. We learn a lot about what we sing corporately from what God wanted his people to sing corporately. We learn a lot about what we sing corporately from what God wanted his people to sing corporately. Are we singing about how God rescues his people? Are we singing about the nations coming to God? Do our songs have a note of celebration in them? Do we smile while singing? Do we sing about God bringing judgment on his enemies? Do we encourage people to sing through trials? Do we sing about how we are to view forgiven sin? Do we sing about the supernatural enablement of God through his people? Do our songs recount the Old Testament narratives? Now that's something for you to think about. That's something for us to improve on. The king's final song, chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. The king's final words, chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Now, I know when I spend a long time on the first point, and then I finally reach the last point, you think, oh, this is intermission. It's time to take a bathroom break, and time to grab some popcorn and some Coca-Cola. But I want to assure you, this is not intermission. I'm not 50% finished. I'm 90% finished. These are not equal parts. It may be like a seventh inning stretch, but it's definitely not intermission. The king's final song, that was spoken while David was in his 20s or 30s, but was placed here at the end. The king's final words, that was spoken by David in his 70s or 80s. Notice verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Stop there. But are they? Are they really the last words of David? No, they're not literally the last words of David. We have those in 1 Kings chapter 2 on his deathbed. There, there are words spoken by David after these words. So, so why are these words called his last words? Well, because these are the official last words. The ones he wanted for the record. D don't think last gasp of air on a hospital bed last words. Think the last official public utterance. The last words David wanted on the record. Verse 1b. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. Stop here. David was raised on high. One theologian said, Israel was a nation that barely had on to 6,000 square miles before David. Now they command 60,000 square miles. 
They are unified under one flag, virtually undefeated in war, feared by the surrounding nations, and they even established a capital, Jerusalem. David was raised high. Verse 1c. The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. In other words, Israel's most popular singer, the darling artist of Israel, the Lord's beloved songwriter, and Israel's cherished musician. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David, David seems to be claiming the office of prophet here. This is the Old Testament version of verbal plenary inspiration. God's word on my tongue. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men. See, see, the Lord expects David, his chosen king, to promote righteousness, to be an uncompromising ruler. Verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God wants his king to be like the sun, to bring light. The Bible sees those living without God's king as in darkness. It doesn't mean that they aren't moral people. It means they are in darkness in their view of God's king. Those of you that are non-Christians, this is how we view you. You are in darkness. God's king drives the clouds away and gives light. God wants his king to be like the sun, bring light. And God wants his king to be like the rain, bring life. Green grass carpeting the earth because someone brought life. Now here's the big verse in the section, verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? <laughs> David wants his last words recorded to be him praying covenant promises. He wants it recorded. The last words on his lips, the promises of God. Now, verse 5, this is God's Davidic covenant. We, we exegeted that back in chapter 7. This is God's promise to David that his house would last forever. His throne would know no end. One would come to sit on it. Now, in order to have a kingdom that will last forever, you either need to have a dynasty that lasts forever or a descendant who lives forever. The Davidic dynasty only lasted 400 years. So it has to be a descendant who lives and rules forever. And you say, well, where was that descendant? What happened to this promise? It went underground for a while and it burst forth again at the birth of Christ. John Owen used to say that you can trust the Davidic covenant because of the author of the covenant, the length of the covenant, and the surety of the covenant. The author of the covenant, the length of the covenant, and the surety of the covenant. Only here in our Bibles are we given the length of the covenant. It's everlasting. This text adds depth to the, to the Davidic covenant teaching. It's perpetual, it's binding forever, it's secure, guaranteed by the promiser. Covenants always bring promises and threats. 
Here come the threats. Verse 6. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them harms himself with iron, arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. David uses a, a botanical illustration, a gardening illustration. All those in the covenant will be protected. All those outside of the covenant will be like weeds and thorns in a garden. Just as a gardener must clear the bed of thorn bushes without injuring himself, so, so God will do his work and, and will, will pile these thorns and start a fire and consume them. His enemies will be cast away forever. This is why I'm consistently telling you, opposition to God's king is ultimately, opposition to God's king is ultimately both worthless and hopeless. David could face death confidently because he knew he was grass, not thorns. He knew he wasn't going to hell. Now, two closing applications for this section. First, David speaks about Jesus 1,000 years before he arrives. David speaks about Jesus 1,000 years before he arrives. These last seven verses offer the royal ideal for God's king. We saw it. One who promotes justice and does all things perfectly. That didn't happen with David. This poem pushes forward to the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus Christ. David wrote this section describing his own job expectations. But it ultimately points to Christ, the only one who can fulfill those expectations. David could fulfill these duties only in a partial and anticipatory way. We can put these words on the lips of the Lord Jesus. It applies in some degree to David, but ultimately to Christ. David speaks first for himself, and then on another level he speaks for Christ, a personal level, a prophetic level. Jesus is the king who delivered everything promised in these seven verses. Jesus is the Davidic king. David's last words, just like his last song, are poetry. And the ultimate subject of the poem is Christ. Our second and final application. Did God transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light today? Did God transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light today? Some of you came in here and you didn't want Christ to be your ruler. And now you do. The Holy Spirit entered your life and changed your view of Christ. And now you desire to submit to him. That's called salvation. You didn't want the king or his commands. But now you're praying thy kingdom come. Suddenly the kingdom is attractive. Suddenly when I preach, these words are landing on you. And they've never done that before. What happened to you? God brought you into his kingdom. Church, whoever you meet tomorrow, no matter where they are from or what their nationality, you can say, Jesus is your rightful ruler and you should be submitting to him. 
Jesus is a universal ruler. He has the right to demand allegiance from every human being on the planet. David's last song, filled with good theology. David's last words, pointing you to Jesus. Father, David is a great composer. Christ is a better composer. David writes songs. Christ is the subject of those songs. Thank you for giving us Christ this day. Oh Lord, with David we sing. You are our rock and our redeemer.